Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSC podcast, we will explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, businesses, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders Council of the Legal Services Corporation. Do you have a court self-help center? Do you have a good legal aid program underway? And could you connect the navigators into that? Is there a pro bono effort underway that you could connect into? So look at the current infrastructure. Do you want a freestanding or do you want to kind of build your program into that which is already there? Welcome to Talk Justice. I am Ron Flagg, president of the Legal Services Corporation. I'm joined today by Mary McClymont. Mary is currently adjunct professor and senior fellow at the Justice Lab at Georgetown University Law Center. She formerly served as president and CEO and a member of the board of directors of the Public Welfare Foundation, a national private philanthropy with a $500 million endowment working to advance justice and opportunity for people in need. The Public Welfare Foundation grant making focused on criminal and youth justice reform workers' rights, and the initiative Mary created and led, civil justice reform. Mary was and is a pioneer and leader in recognizing the tremendously impactful role philanthropy can play in addressing the justice gap, the massive gulf between the civil legal needs of Americans and the resources available to meeting those needs. Mary, welcome. And thanks for continuing your focus on innovation and civil justice reform. Thank you. Good to see you. Could you tell us about the Justice Lab at Georgetown University Law Center and the work you're doing in connection with non-lawyer navigators? Yes, of course, Ron. And it's so good to be with you. And thank you for the kind introduction. Uh, I'm lucky to be at the Justice Lab, which is based uh, at Georgetown Law School. And it was created by and is now directed by Tanina Rostein, who's a professor at the law school. Um, The center addresses the civil justice crisis um, and focuses on promoting the use of technology, undertaking research to try to meet uh, unmet legal needs, try to help do that. And finally, it also tests out different approaches that we might use to forward um, this effort to tackle the justice crisis. In terms of what I've been doing there, uh, let me just give you a backdrop, which you well know, and uh, I think it's worth repeating. Um, You know, 97% of the litigation in our nation is carried out in the state courts. And yet, uh, 30 million of those people in those cases um, are unrepresented. And these are, of course, critical cases, debt collection and eviction and child support and domestic violence and more. Um, and so with that in mind, as you also know, the state court chief justices, along with the top court administrators in our country, issued a resolution in 2015 and it urged that we seek out and attain 100% access to effective assistance for essential legal needs for everybody uh, and do that through a continuum of meaningful services. And those are all sorts of things, as we know, uh, simplification of court rules and uh, self-help services and the use of more and more legal aid lawyers and more technology. Um, So one 
of the approaches in that whole continuum is this use of non-lawyer navigators uh, in our state courts. So at the Justice Lab, um, we undertook a survey of the national landscape of the non-lawyer navigator programs in the courts around the country, um, cor uh, programs that of course assist self-represented litigants or what I'm gonna call SRLs um, in the whole process they have to go through. I was so lucky to be helped in that study by Rebecca Sandifer, Tanina Rostain, and Catherine Aldenator. Uh, we released our study, our report uh, in June, 2019. And basically it describes the characteristics of and offers practical considerations um, uh, on these programs in order to help the courts and others design appropriate programs. Uh, and in the course of doing that study, I'd simply close by saying we were able to speak to some 60 court managers, court administrators, judges, lawyers, a whole bunch of good people who are connected to these programs to get their perspectives and to reach uh, our findings. So Mary, who are uh, these non-lawyer navigators and uh, what do they do? What kind of cases do they, they focus on? Sure. Um, the non-lawyer navigators um, are, are really in, in a way similar to a lot of uh, the ways in which non-lawyers are used in our system. As you know, they're used in federal administrative proceedings. They're used as paralegals at law offices. They're used um, as helpers for community nonprofits. Um, and now we know that many are out there seeing if we can license non-lawyers to provide actual legal advice in some practice areas. But what about the state courts? What's going on there? And we used a very practical definition. We know that court staff help SRLs in, in, in the courts uh, in largely self-help centers. But what we were looking for were actual programs that um, don't use court staff, but rather are using people from the outside, from the community, people who are providing person-to-person -person assistance to SRLs, and of course, people who do not have law degrees, and there therefore is no attorney-client relationship uh, between the SRL and the navigator. Um, and we branded them navigators. We just took on that term because it seemed to have so much resonance with people as we said it. And we thought we needed one term, even though people use many different terms for these kinds of individuals. And just to close, I'll say that, that our study found 23 of these navigator programs in 15 states across the country. And they're in blue states and they're in red states. They're in rural settings and urban settings. Um, and it's important, I think, to note that the programs themselves are run by um, self-help centers, uh, in self-help centers by court staff, court staff who are supervising these individuals, or importantly, they are run by nonprofits, often legal aid lawyers, um, where they get the auspices of the court to be able to conduct the program. So as you can see already, they vary in design. Uh, certainly one size does not fit all. Um, and I think the lesson we came to learn was what creativity is going on out there uh, around these programs. 
So what, what kind of issues can they address? I mean, how do they help people? Well, let me tell you who they are. They, they are, um, uh, just so you'll get a sense of, of the variety of people we've got doing this work. We have AmeriCorps members. That's the national service program you know about. Sure. Volunteers, um, college students, social work students, law students, graduate students, retirees, and paralegals. And we also have nonprofit staff doing this work who are obviously non-lawyers. Um, and the, the navigators are working on a range of case types. Uh, obviously, there are case types that, that are of interest to low and middle income litigants. Uh, it's family law of all sorts. Um, it's housing, uh, including eviction and non-payment proceedings and mortgage foreclosure diversion, uh, debt collection, domestic violence, conservatorship and elder abuse, really a panoply of case types. And, and, and some of the navigator programs, you know, do multiple case types while others just do one. Um, so really in answer to your question, what, what are they doing? And, and I think it's really important to remember that these are legal information programs, not legal advice programs. And so we learned that really well-trained and supervised navigators can undertake an array of tasks. Um, everything from, um, well, a variety. And I'll start with kind of the most basic. Um, these uh, navigators are helping SRLs navigate the courts, right? And that includes showing them around the courts, if the court is open, <laughs> to helping use the computer, uh, connect the SRL to different hearings when they do have to move into a remote proceeding, um, and we see more and more, of course, of the remote proceedings because of COVID and all the restrictions in the court. Um, and and so, so the navigators, in essence, are then helping them with technology. And as we've learned from Rebecca Sandifer's work and many others, so many times it's great to have technology, but people do not know how to use it or are unable to use it. So these navigators help do that. Then moving up the scale a little bit, they, they provide practical procedural information to people. So um, what steps is, are next in your case? Um, what steps will follow at your hearing? What will happen at your hearing? Uh, they make referrals to all sorts of people, to social services, to pro bono lawyers, to legal aid lawyers, to various pieces of the court. Um, and very importantly, uh, as we move up the ladder here, they, they help SRLs complete or just organize um, or review their paperwork, the forms they have to bring to the court. Uh, they provide language assistance, such an important skill set that so many of these navigators have for non-native English speakers. Um, and and to top it all off, some of the programs have navigators who are accompanying SRLs to court. And they are helping them with emotional support, sitting there with them at the table. They're helping answer factual questions that the judge may pose. And I think very importantly, something we often forget about, they're helping an individual understand what the judge just told them. What is it they need to do? What is the order from the judge? So again, in these navigator programs, you've got some programs where they do all of those things, and then you've got other programs where they're just doing two, three, four of them. So as you see, a great variety uh, of activity by the navigators. 
And I think it's important to remember who they're helping. They're helping people who maybe have never been to court before, who are facing, uh, you know, bet the company cases, whether it's the loss of a child or a home or uh, administrative benefits. Uh, uh, so these are really life impacting cases. And to get the kind of help you're describing is obviously uh, can be make a huge difference. Um, so you looked at a lot of different programs around the country, as you've described, what are the hallmarks of the ones that uh, were seem to be most successful in helping people uh, in courtrooms and, and uh, you know, how, how did they benefit the uh, SRLs? Sure. Um, well, I, I would say there's, there's multiple beneficiaries of these programs and, and I'm going to name four that we discovered in our study. Um, it'll be obvious to you as I list them, but but let me walk you through the four. Um, the courts themselves, quite obviously, helping make the court more efficient, um, helping build public trust in the courts. And, and, and what do I really mean by that, this, this benefit to the court? Um, the navigators are ob obviously leveraging court staff who can't possibly meet the entire SRL demand, the self-represented litigant demand. Um, they're increasing court efficiency also by uh, enabling people to submit more complete forms, more accurate forms. But there were a number of the navigator programs who have done studies around this and they really help uh, put, put forward a form that makes sense and that the judge can use. And of course they're enhancing the public trust in the courts and, and how do I, mean that. Um, uh, an SRL feels much better heard, better respected, <laughs> assisted. Um, they're not only in very difficult life circumstances, as you noted, Ron, but in addition, this is a very bureaucratic and alienating proceeding for many people who don't really have a clue about this. So, so to have this extra help from the navigators when you do not have a lawyer, is, is fundamental. The second set of beneficiaries are the obvious ones and probably the most critical, and that is the SRLs themselves. Of course, it helps them understand how to manage their case. When they're clueless, they have no lawyer. It helps with this thing I was pointing out about the courts, these benefits overlap. It helps in the sense that um, an SRL uh, gains a sense of procedural justice. You know, They get to tell their stories. So many of our informants of all these people we were talking to said, you know, the navigator gets to tell their story. They get to tell their story and they get to do it often before they go to the judge. What a nerve wracking proceeding, you know, when you've got to lay out your problem and your circumstances. And so they get to sort of narrate it to the navigator before they, they walk into the court. And, and in addition for the SRLs, although we weren't doing evaluations per se of these programs, um, there are so many examples of good outcomes for the SRLs. Uh, there's a program in Philadelphia, for example, uh, and the navigators are housing counselors and they're helping them with mortgage foreclosure diversion programs. And so the activity that these housing counselors perform uh, are, are so crucial. And, and we have evidence that they helped uh, SRL save something like 11,000 homes over the couple of years that the, the effort was being studied. And then the next category of people who are served and helped by these programs are, of course, the lawyers. 
um, because the navigators supplement um, the services that are provided to a client. Um, and as a number of people said to us, uh, they help the lawyers operate at the top of their practice. Uh, the lawyers, as we well know, simply cannot take on all the SRLs, all the questions that people have. Um, the lawyer needs to be analyzing cases and figuring out how to present a case and, and going after the remedy in the case for the individual. So, so these navigators really feel some gaps for them. And the final um, set of beneficiaries, I think, are the navigators themselves, because we learned that, as I've already noted, a number of these navigators are young people, they're law students, they're college students. Um, many of them will be going on to law school, they're going to be future leaders in our justice sector. So, so they are, by this experience, getting exposed to the court, they're getting exposed to the kinds of problems that arise in the court, and fundamentally will enable them to, to be a better servant of justice later in their life. Uh, they've had the experience, they know the problems in the courts, they know the deficiencies, and hopefully they'll be able to go out and help be more of a champion uh, for the courts um, as they proceed through life in, in the justice sector, hopefully. Mary, how do you respond to people who are concerned about non-lawyer navigators uh, providing legal information? Well, you know, this is such an important question and one that we ask all of our informants really dug into this question. Um, and the good news is that in our study, we learned that there were no formal complaints that were filed as to these programs around unauthorized practice of law or anything like that. And as you ask, you know, how do they manage that? And that's, that's very successful. Um, and, and there were a number of ways we learned from our informants that they can do this. Um, program leaders of, of these navigator programs are absolutely assiduous about distinguishing advice versus information. Uh, as they train their navigators, um, especially since these programs are under the umbrella of the court, it's really important. And so in the navigator program mission statements or the training guides, you see all these do's and don'ts, cans and shoulds that navigators need to follow. Um, they also distribute to the self-represented litigants waivers and disclosure forms um, saying these aren't lawyers. Um, so they've got all the guardrails up with the training and the materials. Um, I think another thing many of these programs have done is they've created the programs in partnerships, often with kind of official them, with official bodies, with the local bar or with the court or with an access to justice commission. And so they're getting buy-in from everybody and sort of a, an understanding and an agreement. Um, and that, that often overcomes sort of the initial concerns that people may have or a skepticism they may have about the programs and are they really just doing legal information. I'll never forget one judge telling me as I talked to him about this that, you know, we've never had any complaints about UPL, about our navigators in courts. And he noted, and I quote him, it is very clear that navigators are not practicing law. They are providing education to SRLs. So, so, so that was so useful in, in getting his perspective. And I think, I think a major thing to close that, that people have done is to develop these safe harbor policies. You know, um, 
none of the programs, none of the legal information programs require statutory or official change or regulatory change because um, they're legal information. Nonetheless, a number of states have issued um, very clear state court or judicial guidelines, uh, which give this very clear specific guidance on what court staff can do, on what volunteers can do, um, so that we know the distinction. Uh, you, you can't be practicing law and here are the things you can and cannot do. Um, they are often called safe harbor policies. And um, I would just note that there's two excellent ones that we know about, and I'm sure there are more. Uh, there's many more judicial guidelines, but as to the safe harbor policies, there's one out of Illinois and one out of Kansas. And very effective in saying what court staff can do, what volunteers can do. And you can find these on this navigator resource page we have, which is located on the self-represented litigation network website. Um, so these, these are out there and you can find them if you need help in, in creating your program. Mary, you did your study before any of us uh, had ever heard of the coronavirus. Uh, do you have a sense as to how uh, these uh, non-lawyer navigator programs have responded to and adopted to uh, the pandemic? Absolutely, this was so important. It was pre-COVID and, and of course these programs were in, in, in person to person assistance right in the court. Um, so obviously like many courts, the navigator programs have had to completely regroup and adapt to the new circumstances and especially to the court closures and change in operations, all the disruptions. Um, and, and in fact, good news is that many of the programs have now begun to incorporate into their work virtual services in whole or in part. Um, you know, they're very dependent on the court. So if the court closes, so too typically does the navigator program. So more and more courts that are going to remote, the better will be with navigators. They can do it too. Um, and, and I would say this though, that several of the navigator programs were already doing a good bit of remote services to their credit. They were doing email and phone work and video conferencing, all of that through Zoom and web chats and so forth with SRLs in addition to the in-person presence. So as much as we still want the in-person presence, we know that virtual tools are coming to these programs. And like I'm sure the courts, they're probably here to stay. Can you give us some examples of programs that have uh, responded particularly effectively during the pandemic? Um, yeah, sure. There, there are, you know, I'll name a number that have kind of done more work on remote. Uh, the Massachusetts, what they call court service centers, they're the self-help centers in Massachusetts. Um, they have moved the entire effort to Zoom so that you have court staff, um, and navigators, navigators in that instance are law students or college students and the like, they move them into breakout rooms and there they're able to help SRLs. They, they help them fill out their court forms through the breakout room, they answer questions, they make referrals, they provide language assistance, all the stuff that they were doing physically present with the SRL. And sometimes if, if that isn't available to the SRL, um, the computer connection, uh, they can do it by phone. Uh, another instance is the Housing Court Answers Program in New York. 
which is a marvelous long-standing program. It's run by non nonprofit, a nonprofit, and they use their staff who are non-lawyers, and they used to have tables in the housing courts, right, where they could meet with SRLs. So now what they've done wisely is move to a hotline because the court is closed down. They've moved to a hotline and they work with SRLs through a call center and thereby help them fill out forms and make referrals and, and, and guide them on eviction, tell them about how to hook into a hearing and all that sort of thing. They help them fill out do-it-yourself forms on another website. Um, another example would be Hamilton County in Ohio. They've got two great navigator programs operating in Ohio that we found. And, and the Hamilton County program, a bit more modest, uh, what they're doing is they just moved to the phone. They have a great phone assistance platform. So their law students and others who are serving as navigators now provide procedural information and make referrals to SRLs in that way. Um, then I just close by citing two other um, AmeriCorps programs, you know, where they have these young people, college grads typically, who are helping SRLs. You've got the biggest AmeriCorps program in the country where over 300 of these AmeriCorps members uh, each year are, are helping SRLs in the courts. And they too have moved online. You know, they're providing information, referrals, uh, completion of forms by either phone or video conferencing. And uh, a related program is in Montana, you know, uh, they're an AmeriCorps program also, and they've been way ahead of the game. They have AmeriCorps members in court self-help centers all throughout the state. And they've already been working through video chat, through email, through phone, in addition to helping SRLs physically in their self-help centers. So these programs, those are just a few examples and more and more are doing this sort of thing. And I think the final piece on the change after COVID, which is really great news, is that we are not seeing fewer programs of navigators, we're seeing more. And we're not only seeing more of them since we did our study, but we're seeing expanding the current ones throughout the, the broader jurisdiction, perhaps throughout the state. You see this in Mississippi, in Georgia, in New Mexico, in New York, it's it's really going on full full throttle, and so I hope it will continue um, post COVID as it's as it's been moving. Well, certainly, the focus on evictions and the potential millions of uh, low income Americans who could be subject to eviction has caused people to think: How can we scale up the assistance available to people who face evictions and and non? Lawyer uh, navigators are obviously one one uh, resource that could could be scaled up uh, certainly at a, a more reasonable cost than uh, relying purely on lawyers. Which brings me to the next question: that's associated with any valuable program, how to fund it? How are non-lawyer or navigator programs currently funded? Well, the upside of that is that these really are as you've already alluded to, um, low resource programs, very reasonable cost, very cost-effective in nature, in, in part because there's a lot of in-kind assistance, there's a lot of volunteers. Yet, of course, funding is needed to do this properly. I mean, 
uh, for training, for supervision, for the basic infrastructure of the program, even if you are using volunteers. But the good news too is that programs have been relying on um, a variety of funding streams. You know, federal resources, state and local resources. Um, they also have been getting money from private foundations, um, from bar foundations, from several of the IOLTA programs, and, and of course, a few from the courts. Um, I, would, I would emphasize, again, this AmeriCorps funding stream. Uh, it's so solid and so sustaining. Um, it's that federal national service program. Young people come in, and they're able to collect a stipend for their work and some educational benefits. And we found five of these AmeriCorps programs in, in our study. And I mentioned two already. And we found five, and what we need is to have 500. This is such an effective mechanism. Um, uh, and, and the best news of all is that the AmeriCorps program, this national service program, and hence the opportunity to get more money, this program is expanding by a billion dollars thanks to the American Rescue Plan. So there's all this new money that's flowing in to the AmeriCorps effort. So it's a great opportunity to go out and apply for this money now for these navigator programs. We have five supermodels already. But even if you can't get onto the AmeriCorps stream or onto some of these amazing uh, federal resources like all the alphabet soup, VOCA and VAWA and all the things that Karen Lash has taught us about through her toolkit, um, you can just get minimal support to start off with a pilot by going to, as I've alluded, um, a community foundation in your area or a private foundation. So there's really a lot of creativity going on in seeking out and finding this funding. I'm, I'm hopeful that people who are uh, watching or listening to our conversation today uh, are going to be inspired to uh, look into or actually uh, take steps to start uh, a non-lawyer navigator program in their, in their neighborhood, in their community. Um, to them, you know, what, what would you identify as the biggest barriers to establishing a, a navigator program? Well, sure. And it's going to depend on each jurisdiction, quite obviously. But I'd say generally, you know, four or five pieces of the puzzle. It's, it, it's really important to get that buy-in, obviously, to get the approval of the court leadership. And, and relatedly, to get these resources, these funding resources we've been talking about. It's always, it's, it's work. Um, it's, it's, it's really important and you find it sometimes a barrier that these programs don't get adequately integrated into the court operation. You know, get related, get, be, enable court staff and judges and others to become aware of the program, to try to hook them up with other programs that may already be going on in the court, such as a legal aid program or a pro bono program. It's really smart to integrate them in and that can be, that can be tricky. Um, of course, it's always helpful to get one of these safe harbor policies that, that we've been talking about before. And, and I don't know that it's a barrier, but it's a step um, that's often very helpful. And, and I would say too, Ron, it's a little trickier right now that uh, you know, getting these navigators, getting volunteers, because some law schools have been closed down, colleges, universities, and so forth. 
as they ramp up, it, it will be resolved, but also getting your actual actors, your navigators because of COVID uh, can be an issue. So those would be a few of the barriers that naturally enough you, you'd have to confront as you begin a program. And so uh, if, if somebody comes to you, obviously you'd have more specifics and facts, but just generically, what, what initial step should uh, uh, be taken to start a, a non-lawyer navigator program? Well, you know, I could name four or five. I, I, think, I think the most important thing, and we've been saying it over and over, is that no one size fits all. There's no per se <laughs> recipe. It's going to vary, and that's really important. So just, just be creative <laughs> and, and let, it, let it flow. Um, but I also think it's really smart, and we heard this from so many informants, to start with a pilot program if you need to. You know, you don't have to have your navigators doing all those tasks I mentioned, and, and you can start slower and start with a pilot and move from there. And many of the very successful programs have done that. Um, I think it's important, obviously, to assess your court environment. You know, what is the infrastructure that's already there? Do you have a court self-help center? Um, it, that would really be be helpful to get based there. Um, or, or, or do you have a good legal aid program underway? And could you connect the navigators into that? Um, is there a pro bono effort underway that you could connect into? So look at the current infrastructure. Do you want a freestanding or do you want to kind of build your program into that which is already there? Quite obviously, you need to really have a program purpose or goal. Um, you know, who's your target group? Are you gonna zero in on just eviction? Um, what are the needs of the particular court and the clientele within it that, that sort of surmount everything else? Um, and I'd say finally, it's, it's so important and you don't need to go it alone. You know, you, you can engage partners. That's the way to get multiple champions. So many programs have done that. Bringing in the ATJ commission or bringing in judges or court staff, whatever your, your spot is, bring in partners with you so that you can get more buy-in from everybody. And, and, you know, of course there are many operational concerns, but I did want to note again, uh, Ron, that we, we do have really good news on this. We have a lot of information for people, you know, on here are training guides you can use. Um, here is the legal advice versus legal information conundrum. And here are some policies around that. Uh, here's the study that we did. Here's examples of other programs. Here's a contact list of other navigator programs around the country that you can use. And all that kind of information is on this SRLN, the Self-Represented Litigation Network website on the navigator page. So people can go there um, and, and get more information. It's not like, you know, you're going it alone because we've really created sort of a um, a repertory of, of, of activity uh, of, of people that can help you if you want to get a program started. You've described the really robust start uh, that uh, uh, non-lawyer navigator programs have accomplished. Um, taking it from here, what's your vision for the future of non-lawyer navigator programs and, and how do we get to, to that vision? Well, I think there is a very real future for these programs. Naturally, you can tell I'm pretty excited about them and think they are really one key piece of the spectrum 
to take into consideration as you're trying to prove this desperate crisis we're in. Um, but I have continued to monitor the programs after the study and, and Ron, I just identify a number of positive signs I see. Uh, and, and that's kind of combined with what I know we are gonna need to do to get more of these programs. Um, there are more programs um, that are being realized even post COVID. Um, and, 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 and I think related to that, this is the low hanging fruit. This is not changing a million different regulations and trying to convince lawyers we're gonna take over their practice or something. This is the low hanging fruit. And, and, and so to see more programs popping up is really good to see. Um, we need more awareness. And that's why I'm so grateful to you for doing this because um, we just need more awareness about it. And I think one of the big new steps that's happened in that regard is once again, the chief justices of the state courts and, and the court administrators have issued a wonderful resolution lately uh, that says we need to adopt and, and urge the development and expansion of these programs. That was a huge boost to get that resolution from the chiefs. They think it's worth it. They gave it a shout out. And I think we should follow that lead at, because we need multiple champions throughout the court system and amongst our lawyers to, to get this done. Um, another thing that's so positive for the future is we do have proven models. Um, as I've already alluded, we've got a lot of information. We've got a lot of guidance for people. Um, and relatedly, we, we do know these programs are low resources. Uh, you know, of course we need some funding, but it's not breaking the bank to get this done. I, I think another very relevant feature that, that bodes well for the future is that these programs are so nonpartisan. Um, it, they're, they're helping people help themselves. That's what these are, just like any self-help service. This is an additional bump on self-help services and, and they would be surely well-received across the political spectrum by Republican, Democrat, or independent. Um, uh, and and I, I conclude this by saying that as some have said to me, and, and I'll, I'll take it, I think it should go on. I think these programs should be with us into the future on justice system reform, but at least we know these are short and medium term mechanisms to help the system work better as we try to tackle this huge number of self-represented litigants in the courts. And we just need more of them. We need them going to scale. I'll never forget when I started this study and Rebecca Sandifer was a marvelous consultant throughout as I've already said. And what Becky said to me was, Mary, we need to figure out how to take them to scale. Uh, I think we both and my colleagues on this study are convinced this is a marvelous and appropriate way to go, but we've got to get them to scale. So we need to keep seeking out and finding these funding opportunities and finding the willpower to get it done in our courts. Mary, thank you so much for being with me today, but much more importantly, thank you for your leadership uh, and before at the Public Welfare Foundation and continuing today on innovation and civil justice reform. Uh, you're, you're a true champion and uh, you're making a difference. Thank you. Thank you, Ron. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on the podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.